0: Welcome to the SCG Church Podcast. We'd love to have you join us for our weekend services in person in our West Auditorium. You can also tune into our service live online at SCGchurch.org or live on our Facebook and YouTube pages. Thanks for listening. All right, so let's jump in. We are to start a new series today, and this series is called Under the Influence. And it's a study of the book of Colossians. And if you don't know anything about the Bible, let me give you just a quick overview is if you open up the scriptures, you've got the Old Testament and you've got the New Testament. Now, the Old Testament is everything before Jesus. The New Testament is all about Jesus. And so if you were to open up the New Testament, you've got these four books. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and those are called the… this is a play along. When I go like this, that's you, okay? That's you. All right. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, those are the Gospels. And then after the, so those are all about Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection, his ministry. This tells us all the stories of Jesus. And then we go to the next book, which is Acts. Okay, so third row knows. third row notes. You can cheat. You can look it up right now as I go, it's fine. I don't care. You just shout it out. Okay, so you go to Acts and Acts is the story of the early church. Here's what happened after Jesus ascension into heaven is he launches this church and here is how it all begins. Right after that, you have these 13 what are called epistles or letters, and they're written by a really, really important guy. His name is Paul. Paul. See, this side's doing good. Is it because I, if I stand closer than you get? And he is Paul. still that section. Okay, all right. <laughs> oh, I tried. Uh, So, yes, his name is Paul, the Apostle Paul, and if you don't know his story, he had this dramatic conversion. He was once a person that went and hunted down Christians uh, to becoming a Christian himself, and not just any kind of Christian. He goes and he plants all these different churches, and the, the letters that he writes to these churches, some of which he has never been before, are the 13 books that we have in the New Testament. That are his letters. And what he does is he teases out the theological significance of who Jesus is and what his life meant and what the resurrection and all of this means for our life and the theological significance. And so um, one of the letters that we're going to look at is called Colossians. And he wrote it to a church that he had never been to before, but one of his friends had planted it. And Paul, at this point, finds himself in jail because of his faith. His friend comes and visits and is giving him an update on this church. And he says, well, the church is going good. Um, People are loving Jesus, following Jesus, but we do have some issues. And he describes the issues that they're having, and we don't really know exactly what the issues are. We kind of have indications of them, but really the gist of it is they're coming under the influence of different pressures within the church and without, like cultural pressures, but then also pressures in the church. And so Paul's whole deal is, okay, we have to avoid coming under the influence of these uh, different pressures. And so what he does is, he gives us probably the most theologically dense description of who Jesus is. And what I mean by this is like, if we're talking about Jesus, this is the deep end of who he is. He spells out in great detail things about Jesus that um, you're not going to find throughout uh, much of the uh, New Testament. So I'm going to try to boil this down as much as we can along the way, and, and maybe stop and make sure that we're understanding what Paul is saying. But we'll jump in. Colossians 1.15 says this: If you have your Bible apps or Bible, open it up. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created, and is supreme over all creation. So for all of human history, the vast majority of people have believed that either some sort of God or gods exist. That's never been a hot debate. I mean, it is in our cultural context, but the question that most people have asked is, well, what is this God like? What is this God or gods? What are their likes? What are their dislikes? There's a German, or excuse me, a Russian cosmonaut named German Tivtov, and he was the second person to orbit the earth, and he was also an outspoken atheist. And when he came back after his space trip, and he was being interviewed by different um, radio and news outlets— they asked him, has your view changed at all? I mean, you're an outspoken atheist. Now you've been out there. Did your view change at all? And here's his response. He says, some say God is living there in space. I was looking around very attentively, but I did not see anyone there. I did not detect either angels or gods. Here's, I went into outer space. Guess what? No God. No God out there. Confirmed. Still an atheist. Now, here's the misunderstanding that he has. The conception of God that he had was actually similar to one that you'd find in Mormonism, which is God is just like you and I, made of flesh and bone. That it has a physical body. But that's not the conception that the Scripture lays out from the very beginning, and Paul is affirming here. The biblical concept of God is that God is invisible because he's immaterial. He's a mind. So that raises the next question, which is, okay, well, then how are you supposed to know what an invisible God is like? You might be able to learn some things about this God by looking at his creation. We look around, we look at the universe, we look at the world. We can even look at ourselves and who we are. And we might be able to do, to do, to, to, we might be able to understand, um, it's a third service. I'm just, whew, third service, uh. We might be able to understand certain things about God, like, you know, he's powerful, he's intelligent, maybe even good and moral, but that still leaves a lot of room for debate. And so when we ask questions like, well, what is God's likes and dislikes? What does he feel about certain things? What was the purpose of creation? Can I know this God? Is this God personal? All of those are still open-ended questions that we can't really deduce from nature. Well, here's what I've noticed is that most people throughout human history, and this is especially true today, is that they think that God looks conveniently like them. It's the strangest thing when you ask people, well, what's God is like? And they start describing, you go, wait, that sounds a lot like you. Like this God likes all the things that you like and dislikes all the things and would act just like you act and would live just like you live? That is so convenient. Here, I'll prove it to you right now. No one has a right of hands in your mind. Think, okay, the political party that I most align with is, just answer it in your head. Answer it in your head. You would bet that Jesus would be that political party. Red or blue, Jesus thinks just like you, right? Yeah, it's... So if you look at the concept of God here in the West, especially in America, the popular idea is that God just wants you to be happy, be a good person, be true to yourself, do more good than bad, however that's defined. And then once you live a life of doing all the things that you already wanted to do, he's going to reward you with heaven. But I don't think that's how we can understand God. C.S. Lewis has a great illustration. He says, if you want to know what God is like, You can't come to God like you would introducing yourself to a next-door neighbor. Say somebody moves in next door, the way that you get to know them is you go, you're not going to introduce yourself, you get to know them through a dialogue conversation. He says you're never going to know God like that. The way that you are going to understand who God is, is much more like Shakespeare and Hamlet. Hamlet relates to Shakespeare because the way that he does is, is Shakespeare has created Hamlet. And if Hamlet were to go and explore the world that Shakespeare has created for him, he won't find Shakespeare anywhere in it. He might be able to understand certain things about the author by the world that he's created and by the the person that he is, but he's never going to find Shakespeare anywhere in the creation. The only way that Hamlet will ever come to know Shakespeare is if Shakespeare writes himself into the story, if he steps into it. And that's what Paul is claiming here is that the author, the creator, has stepped into the story and revealed himself. The word he uses here for image means that he is a perfect representation of God. Even Jesus says it about himself. He says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. So what Jesus is not claiming is, like many other religious leaders and thinkers and philosophers is, here is the best explanation of what God is like. No, no, no. Jesus comes and he says, I am the best explanation of what God is like. If you want to know what God is like, you don't have to debate. You don't have to guess. You can get a perfect picture of who God is when you look at me. That's different than any other religious claim, philosophical belief, theological understanding. He says, I am God. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth— He made the things we can see and the things we can't, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. John makes a similar statement. He says, through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And this is what divides orthodox historical Christianity from pretty much everybody else. Is you take Mormons, you take Jehovah's Witnesses, you even take Islam, and they may all believe that Jesus is somebody important. That he might even have been sent by God. He might even be a deity of some sort. Even people who are not religious, they have admiration for Jesus and think he is someone. But nobody, except for the Orthodox Christians for the last 2,000 years, has said, no, no, no. Jesus is more than that. He is the eternal, uncreated one. A couple of years ago, I was probably quite a few years ago now, I had somebody knock at my door, and it was these just very sweet older ladies, and they said, hey, um, we're here going around telling people about Jesus. They were Jehovah's Witnesses. Can we tell you about Jesus? And I said, I wish you would. <laughs> I think that'll be a great conversation. So they come in, and, and we sit down, and they start, you know, going through their brochure and all that stuff. And, and so I start asking them questions. Oh, hold on, don't skip that part. What did you say right there? I started asking, and very quickly they just went, uh, hmm, we're going to send you one of our elders. He's going to come and talk to you. And I said, great, I would love to meet him too. And so a couple weeks later, uh, one of the elders shows up from Jehovah's Witnesses, and he says, I heard you have some questions. And I go, I do. I'm a simple man. I got simple questions. I'm sure it'll be easy for you to answer. Come on in. So we sit down at the kitchen table, and I say, okay. And I pull up these verses, and I say, I'm real, I'm a simple dude, okay? So just explain this to me. I pull out a blank piece of paper, and I draw a line right down the middle of it. And on one side, I put created. On the other side, I put uncreated. Okay. Now, as we look at these verses and the rest of Scripture, what goes in the created category? He says, everything. Okay. yeah, yeah. Okay. What goes in the uncreated category? He says, God. I say, okay, great. I'm with you. Where does Jesus go? He's like, whew. Because what he wants to say is, he wants to say Jesus goes in the created category. The problem is, once he says that, I go, oh, let's go back to what it says here. It says, Jesus created everything. So how does Jesus go in the created category if he created everything? And so his response was, I'll get back to you. It's been years. I still have not heard back from him yet. I'm sh- it's funny, actually. I don't, I don't know if I got put on a list or something like that, but um, they, they haven't visited since. And I will watch them go from house to house and then just like walk around my house. And so Amy will give me a heads up. She'll be like, hey, 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 they're, they're going to the next house. Come outside. So I'll come in this side. i go, hey, you guys talking about Jesus? What's you guys doing out right here? You guys talking about Jesus? I'm all about Jesus. You guys want to talk about Jesus? I'm like, oh, okay, good to see you. Bye. It's like, all right. Oh, there you go. Anyway, so... One of these days, we're going to come back. We're going to have a grand old time. All right. um, Where was I? So let's see if we can simplify this. Um, Because, again, I want to boil this down because it's deep. And um, I want to make sure we don't miss this. And so one of the things that we say around here, and you'll see it, we got it on, you know, sweatshirts and t-shirts and plaster around campus, is, is we believe that Jesus changes everything. And we have theological and philosophical, historical reasons why we believe this. But Paul is actually laying out some of the best reasons why we believe Jesus changes everything. So he already says it here. And let's use this as like our foundation here. He says, Jesus changes everything because Jesus created everything. Jesus created everything. And my kids, um, as they've been learning that Jesus has created everything— and I don't know where they get this from, they're much smarter than I am, they must be taking after their mother, is they're asking me very difficult questions, especially my son. He's eight years old and he goes, okay, dad, Jesus created everything, huh? I go, yeah. All right, well, what about sin? What about the devil? Did he create those too? And I'm like, you're eight, dude. Go to bed, bro. Your bedtime's, (laughs) it's like 8.30 right now. Why are you not asleep? Um, So I said, all right, bud, let's, yeah, let's, and this is this week. I said, all right, let's, let's unpack that a little bit. Let's talk about that. So if Jesus created everything, and yet here is sin, and we have the suffering, and we have Satan, and we, did he create those things? All right, well, well, let's look at it. What did Jesus create? He created everything, and everything that he created was good. But he also created this other thing, us who have free will. And the reason why he gave us free will is so that we could decide if we were going to choose him or we were going to reject him, because that's the only way that love can exist, is through the freedom of choice. And what happens is, when we decide that we are no longer going to follow him, but reject him, and we use our free will, what we do is we take those good gifts that he has given us, and then we pervert them and use them in ways that he never wanted us to use them. And so what evil actually is, is it's the perversion, it's the misuse of God's good gifts. I think the most obvious example of this is sex. He gave us the good gift of sex and he says, okay, now here's the context that it's going to be used. Be very careful because it is a fragile thing. It is a good thing, but it is a fragile thing. And what we do is we go and we misuse it. And then because of our misuse, there's all kinds of abuses, all kinds of suffering, all kinds of evil in the world and in our own lives. Because we've taken a good gift and we've misused it. And he's like... I'll ask you again in a couple of years. I don't really understand what you're talking about. And I'm like, yeah, good. We don't, it's okay. Continues on. He says, everything was created through him and for him. So Jesus changes everything because Jesus owns everything. Now, I don't know about you, but as I look around the, my house, there are two primary ways in which I've come to own something either I made it or I paid for it, I bought it. And the same is true with Jesus, he did both says that he created us, he made us, and he also bought us. He bought us back from sin and from death. And so when it says that he owns us, he really means that he owns us. Everything belongs to him. A couple weeks ago, I asked a somewhat provocative question. I asked, who owns you? And people were just kind of taken aback, like, what? It didn't even make, that question didn't even make sense. It's kind of insulting. What do you mean, who owns me? Nobody owns me. Especially in a culture like ours where we're hyper individualistic. When we think, no one can tell me what to do. I am in charge. I am the one who gets to make the decisions for my life. Every arena of my life, I am in control of my money, my body, my future, my schedule. my It's all mine. Not even God himself can tell me what to do. Well, if this is right, it says that Jesus actually owns you. That you are not your own. If you were a Christ follower, you have willingly given your life up to him. Paul reminds us this in one of his letters in 1 Corinthians. He says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. In this context, he's talking about sexual immorality. And so he says that God is, Jesus owns everything, including your body. But we can extend this to all arenas of our life. It's not just your body that he owns and gets to dictate what you do with it. It's everything in your life is his. And so when we become Christ followers, we wake up every day and we go, okay, Jesus, I am not my own. I'm yours. What do you want? What do you want? My life is yours. You get to decide. And here's what's great, is for the large majority of things in your life, he has already told you what he wants. It's in the scripture. He laid it out. There's not a whole lot of debate. Now, there may be some peripheral things or some specific things in in your life that you need God to guide you in, and that makes a lot of sense. But for the most part, he's been pretty clear. Here's what I want from you. Here's what I want your life to look like. 17, he existed before anything else, <clears throat> and he holds all creation together. So Jesus changed everything because Jesus sustains everything. Yesterday we woke up uh, at our house, and it was very windy and rainy, and for some reason, I don't know how it happened, but um, it broke our hot water heater. So we get up, and we're like, oh, no, it's cold outside. And now we got no hot water, and, you know, we got church. So we should probably shower before that. You know, that's the whole thing. And so Amy says, I need you to go, and I need you to fix it. Well, luckily, it's outside, our hot water heater, and it's raining, and it's cold, and I'm in my robe. And so I get to go outside, and I get to fix it. And so I'm messing around with it for a little bit, and eventually I get it to kick back on. And, you know, Daddy is a hero and all that good stuff. Um, no one said that, by the way. Uh, <laughs> now, I was thinking... If I didn't fix that, who would have fixed it? I can tell you who wouldn't have fixed it. My kids. They're a disaster. They can't even get themselves bathed, let alone figure out the hot water heater. If Amy and I stepped back and we just allowed the kids to just do whatever they want to do, you know what would happen to our home? One, it would burn down, okay? It would be over, And the kids would be a disaster because what Amy and I, we do is we sustain our household. We keep it moving. We're the one who provides the food. We're the one who provides the, that pays for the bills and gets the kids ready and make sure that they survive and they don't kill each other. And we're the, we are the ones who sustain that entire household. That's what Jesus does with the universe is Jesus sustain? So if he steps away, the whole thing is going to implode. He's the one that keeps it moving. He's the one that keeps it together. Because not only is he the creator, not only does he own it, but he sustains it each and every moment. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. Now, I wish I had more time to unpack this, but what Paul is talking about is a new creation. That Jesus is creating this, this new humanity, and it's called the church. And when the church comes together, it becomes a part of a body of believers, and Jesus is the head of that body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. This This is crazy. Not only does Jesus have authority over creation and life, but now he has authority over sin and death. That when he died and he resurrected, he defeated sin and death. And so here's a conclusion. So he is first in everything. So the reason why Jesus changed everything is because Jesus is first in everything. Chronologically he's first. He existed for eternity past, and so he was before all things. He is the first in this new creation that God is bringing about through his resurrection. It even calls him the firstborn of creation, meaning he is the heir or the ruler of all creation. And then he brings it full circle, and he says, For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. So he says, when you look at Jesus, remember, you're not just getting a glimpse of who God is. You're not getting like this watered-down version you're getting the fullness of God. All of God can be seen in Jesus because Jesus is God. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Jesus Christ changes everything because Jesus reconciled everything. Here's what this means. And here's kind of the image. Is this is his creation. He is the owner. He is the ruler. He is the king. And this is his kingdom. And what has happened is there's been a rebellion. Mankind has rebelled against their king and they've tried to take the kingdom for themselves. But it says that he has come back and he is going to be the rightful ruler over his kingdom. And what he's doing right now is he is allowing us to choose. Will we submit and will we stop our rebellion and submit to him as our creator and our ruler and our king? Or will we continue to rebel? Because the end of the story is he comes back and takes what is rightfully his. And so you get to decide which side of that line you're going to be on. Because he owns it, he sustains it, and then he rules it. So here's a kind of the big picture of what I think Paul is saying. Very simple, or at least this is my simple way of understanding it, is when you think about Jesus, think Jesus is everything. He's the beginning, he's the end, he's the creator, the owner, sustainer of life, the feeder of death, redeemer, and ruler. And so when you think about Jesus, you think he's it. Jesus is everything. And then Paul gives us a bit of an application here. He says, This includes you, who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. Now, hear this last part. But you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. Every generation, this is including just a few years after Jesus' death, every generation of Christians has been tempted to drift away. Now, the temptations may look different for each generation or or location, but there's always been this this danger of coming under the influence of things either in the church or outside of the church that bring you away from Christ. For them, it was theological. Is they were tempted to come under this false teaching, under the influence of these these false teachers that were trying to tell them something different than what all the disciples and all of the early church had believed. And it's still true today. Is we have 2,000 years of church history where the most brilliant people, not just in the church, like in the world, have thought about this and looked at this from every angle. And we've all agreed, this is what it looks like. This is what the Bible teaches. This is orthodoxy. This is the historical Christian faith. And then there's always a group of people, every generation who go, ah, I've discovered something new. I know something that they didn't know. I know something about Jesus or about the Bible. I, they didn't understand this because culture was different back then. And so here's what we understand now. And I want to say to those people, are you really that arrogant? You're that smart. Out of 2,000 years of all of these people wrestling with it and trying to understand it and coming to a consensus, you figured it out. By the way, this is part of what they were struggling with. As people came along, it's called Gnosticism. They had a special knowledge about Jesus. And so they were going to impart this special knowledge as well. No, it wasn't true then. It's it's still not true now. Or or maybe the, the temptation is ideological is every generation has these different trendy philosophies and ideologies. And what's crazy to me, even just as a non, like from a non-Christian perspective, is if you think about the trendy philosophies and ideologies from your great-grandparents' age, the things that they believed that were maybe cultural in nature, you would look back and think, not only is it silly, but it might have been downright wrong. Like, how could they believe and think such thing? How could they have bought into that? That's ridiculous. Do you not think that they're going to say the same things about the philosophies and ideologies that we've come up with today? Of course they are. And that's why, when I think about what I believe and where I construct my worldview from, I want to go with something that has withstood the test of time. I want a faith that is rooted in history and has been looked at and thought about and it's worked in every single area, and every age. I want to base my life in something that's not going to go away in the next generation. I think I'm going to stick with the historical, orthodox beliefs that have always been practiced. Sometimes it's just downright lifestyle that tempts us. Is we look at people and we think, man, the things that they get to do with their money and their time and their bodies, man, it just, it seems like they're having a little bit more fun than I am maybe I can dabble. Maybe I can head in it. Maybe I can. I heard someone say the other day, and this person was not a Christian, and I thought this was really interesting. They said, you know, the people who are actually rebellious in our culture that are countercultural, the only people left are Christians. And I thought that was great insight because they're the only ones who live differently than everybody else. I mean, if you really want to be countercultural, then just wait to have sex. Give away your money. Live for somebody besides yourself. And I went, he gets it. This guy gets it like he understands we as Christians we're called to live differently and we live differently because we want to be like Jesus and we also believe that Jesus is going to have much better outcomes for our life than we can have for ourselves and much better than whatever the world is going to offer us. And so I go that guy gets it is the lifestyle that we live. We live differently or it could be just moral convictions things that we've always known to be right or wrong. We begin to question and compromise because of maybe it's a personal desire external pressures. And we begin to drift. And so if I could just be really transparent and, you know, maybe think about where not us as a church, but even the church in the West is heading, I really see it going in one of two ways. I see it either compromising and capitulating to culture and start to drift further and further away. As culture gets further and further away from its moral um, and and, uh, philosophical Christian foundations, I start to see the church drifting right along with them. And this never happens on purpose. It's never like we wake up one day and we go, you know what, let's just compromise, you guys. (laughs) That's never never happened. What happens is we just make a little compromise here and a little compromise there, or maybe we're just not even paying attention. We're apathetic, and so we just go with the flow, and we don't resist. And we end up falling under the influence of the culture around us. I saw an example of this at Christmas is uh, my mom ordered a children's book for my niece, And it was one of the top-rated children's books in the Christian category, and it was talking about what is is God like. And they said, oh, this is going to be great. We'll read it to her at bedtime, you know, and and it's full of all these pictures and stuff. And I recognized the author on it. I said, can I see that real quick? And so I started to read it. And again, this is the top-selling Christian children's book. And I'm not going to get into too much detail, but I'll just tell you my red flags were— uh, my flag, red flag went up right away because it said, God is like, and then it went, he is like, she is like, it is like, and then it went downhill from there. And I went, well, that's interesting. And the pictures and all this, it just got, and I just, huh, how is it that this has thousands of reviews on Christian books and all the Christian websites, and yet it is nowhere close to the historical Christian faith? Oh, because we've drifted. We've drifted. We've said, okay, culture's going this way, then we'll go that way too. But there's another option, and Paul lays it out for us here. He says, or you can stand firm. You can align yourself with the historical Christian beliefs and just decide that you and the people that you love will not veer from this path. And what this looks like in the terms that we're using today is you're going to put Jesus over everything. And i got to be honest, it's going to be an all-in no holds barred type of life. You can't be a halfway Christian. You couldn't before. You can't now. It's definitely in the future. It's not going to be possible. You're going to go, okay, I'm all in every arena of my life. Everything is going to point in this direction, and I'm not going to veer from it. I'm not going to compromise. I'm not going to drift. I'm just going to continue to head in this direction because I'm not going to get there by accident. It's going to take everything that I have to follow Jesus. This last week, Amy and I got to go on date night and it had been a little while since we had been on date night, and life was kind of crazy. And, and so I said, Amy, we've been together for 18 years, married for uh, almost 15. I said, on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being the best ever, 1 being we really may not make it, where would you rate our marriage? I want you to be brutally honest with me. She said, well, I'm married to a 10, so obviously it's going to be a <laughs> 10. You're not even paying attention. See, you didn't even get that. Okay. No, she gave me her number and I said, "Okay, cool." Like, what would it take for us to get to that next place? And so we talked about that and you know, it was a good indicator of the health of our marriage and all that. And here's what I realized is just like my marriage was a one-time commitment that I made on our wedding day, it was a lifetime of progress and growth and investment and commitment. Is I don't just one day go, "I'm married." All right, that's it. All the work is over. I've done what I'm supposed to do. Isn't that nice? You won't be married for long. (laughs) No, I get up and I go, okay, how can I serve you? How can I better love you? How can we grow closer together? It's a lifetime of progress. Same thing is true when we follow Jesus. Is okay, I follow Jesus. Now, how am I going to follow a little closer today? How am I going to know him a little bit more? It's every day asking Jesus, are you over everything in my world? So um, Paul ends with this, an affirmation or, or maybe an encouragement. He says, as you're continuing to grow in your knowledge and your pursuit of Jesus, remember this. He says, remember that Jesus changed everything. You were once far from God. Not just far, but you were his enemy. And that distance wasn't because of him. It was because of you. It was because of your sin and your rebellion. And yet, he stepped in in order to make a way back for you. And when he did that... And you two are reconciled. He began changing you from the inside out. And as he does that, everything begins to change. And so that's the reminder. is we go and we pursue Jesus, not because he's going to get angry at us, not because he's going to be bitter, not because he's going to punish us, not because we're going to do discipline. No, 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 no. It's because this is how we change. This is how Jesus changes everything. It's by us putting Jesus over everything. Let's pray. Lord God, We thank you for letters like this, where we get to understand you more. We don't have to guess any longer what you are like and what you desire from us. And yet, in this, we are incredibly encouraged because it's really not dependent upon us. It's something that you have done for us that we just simply receive and we live out in our lives. And so, Lord, I just pray that we here would build people of strong faith that would go out there and that they would also be able to introduce people to you because of their strong faith. They're not gonna be tempted to drift or to fall away, but they would be people who are passionate about you and can bring other people into a relationship with you. Lord, I just thank you for this church. I thank you for what you're doing here, that the relationships that are growing, especially the relationship with you. Lord, we thank you, we love you. It's your name we pray, amen. All right, you guys stand with me. Thank you for being here this week. And you guys go in and check out the school, the open house, grab some hot chocolate and we will see you next week. God bless. We hope you enjoyed this message. And remember, we have live services on Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings in our West Auditorium. Or you can watch live online at scgchurch.org or on our YouTube and Facebook.